We are in week three, and I'm excited to jump into week three this week of our series in the book of Acts. This is the first section of Acts we're going to go through. We've already gone through chapter one, uh, so we're launching into chapter two today, and then Pastor Andrew will finish out chapter two next week before we head to our next sermon series right before Easter. And I just want to give a quick warning before we jump into today. We have a lot of ground to cover. I came home, I usually do a lot of my sermon prep on Mondays, so I kind of like help, like let my sermon kind of process through over the course of the week, and I got home on Monday, and Becca said, how was your day? And I went, exhausting, because we are going through 41 verses today, okay? So I took 41 verses and tried to put it all together, and so here's what I'm going to say before we get started. There's going to be times where we hit some pieces of this passage, and you might want me to go a little bit deeper, and we just don't have time to do that today. There might be some things that come up, and you're going to go, well, what do we think about this? And I'm going to, and we just don't have time to jump in. And there's going to be some things I highlight, and some things I lowlight, and you might be like, I wish you would highlight that and lowlight that. So I'm just letting you know, we're going to be all over the place today, but here's what I want you to do. And this is just a reminder of this great resource we have that will be helpful. If you scan this QR code on the back of the Next Steps card... It will take you to our follow-along. One of the things you get to do on our follow-along is ask a question. So if there's something that comes up today that you go, I wish I could hear more, or would you have input on this, or could we talk about that, please send me an email, and this week I will go through those emails, and I will get back to you and try and help process through some of those things where we might not get to dive deep today, okay? So go to the follow-along, do that. I would love to receive those questions. If it's a really hard question, just send it to Pastor Andrew, and we'll figure it out from there, okay? It's going to be good. So here's where we're starting, okay? So we're in Acts 2, okay? So we're going to set the scene a little bit. Now, if you missed the last couple weeks or you're not connected, you're joining us online for the first time, we've already processed the idea that Jesus has ascended, okay? So he, he died, he rose again, he ascends. So now the church gets set to go, okay? So there's the apostles, the 12 apostles, right? They just picked a new one to replace Judas. And you've got what we know as 120 people. That's kind of the church at this point. So this is where we're picking up the story. They're still waiting for the Holy Spirit to arrive. And we're, we're going to start talking about a day called the Day of Pentecost. Now, you might have heard this before, but maybe you didn't know what it was. It's when the Holy Spirit came, and we're going to dig into that a little bit today. But th- this is what it's called, the Day of Pentecost. Well, you might say, what is that? What, what's the Day of Pentecost? There's three things I want you to know about what Pentecost was. Number one, uh, it's about 50 days after the Passover, so you think about, just give us the timeline, okay? So here's where we're at. When when the Last Supper happens, Jesus sits with his disciples, has a meal, and then goes the next day to be crucified. They were celebrating the Passover. So think about, you know, time-wise, you're going, okay, so Jesus dies, there's three days there, so then he's back. And then we know he was around for about 40 days, okay? So you're about 40 days, a little bit more, maybe after the uh, after Jesus dies. And then he ascends into heaven, and then they're waiting for the Holy Spirit for about 10 days. So here's the thing. We're only about 50 days removed from Jesus's death. It's not that long. Less than two months ago, Jesus was crucified. Okay, so then you've got all the time where he was appearing to people and he ascends and all that stuff. So it's about 50 days after Passover. Pentecost as we know it is was not just significant because of Pentecost. It was actually another Jewish holiday. And this is where there's some words that I'm going to try and say today that aren't going to work. But it's the Jewish holiday of Shavuot. I think that's how you say it. I watched some videos on it. I think that's how you say it. Okay, if I'm wrong, you can correct me later. That's okay. I'm probably wrong. So this is how you say it. Okay, that's, that's what this holiday was. And this holiday celebrates the gift of the Torah to Moses on Mount Sinai. So you think back, what the big events, right, in early in Jewish history, right, the history of the Israelites, 
Moses getting what we would call the like Ten Commandments in the Torah, which is the five, first five books of the Bible, right? We're getting some of that, but the Torah specifically was uh, pointing to the law, pointing to the Ten Commandments, okay? That's a big deal. Many people know the story of receiving Ten Commandments. Moses goes up on the mountain, he receives those. And the point, like just, and we'll dig into this a little bit later, the point was for the nation of Israel to be set apart. They, they wanted to follow these rules. They were supposed to follow these rules because they were the people of God. So they were supposed to look different than everybody else. And so you've got this holiday that's already being celebrated. This was a significant day that was celebrated 50 days after the Passover for the nation of Israel. And all of the, all of the church at this point with the 120, they're all Jews. They're all Jewish. So they're celebrating this holiday together. And so we pick this up in Acts 2, verses 1 and 2. It says this, On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly, there was a sound from heaven, like the roaring of a mighty windstorm. And it filled the house where they were sitting, verses 3 and 4. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. Okay, this is the first moment where you're going to go, we're not going to worry about one part and we're going to go to another. Okay, so there's two things here. We'll touch on it and I'll touch on it a little bit later. The, the Spirit kind of represents itself and shows up in two ways here, right? They hear the windstorm, they they hear things, and all of a sudden this wind kicks up, right? That's That kind of happens, and we'll touch on that a little bit later. But the thing that we are going to land on mostly this morning is this idea of fire. And so all of a sudden they, they hear this windstorm, they know something's happening, but they have these tongues of fire, these little pieces of fire, right, that are over their heads. And this is the sign that, that the Holy Spirit is there. Now, this isn't the first time that the presence of God, ha, of God has been represented by fire. In fact, we're not going to go to these two passages, but I'm just going to list the chapters. So the presence of God is often indicated by fire. The first time we would see, or one of the times we would see, is Exodus 3, the burning bush. Okay, if you don't know the story, Moses, same guy who gets Ten Commandments, he's a shepherd, he's out in the wilderness, and... He sees this bush that's on fire, but not burning up. Kind of weird, right? There's flames, but it's not burning up the way you would expect it to burn up. So, and then the voice of God comes out of it. So God is there in the burning bush having a conversation with Moses. And then if you fast forward to Exodus 13, as the nation of Israel is moving and God is leading them at night, he's a pillar of fire. And so this isn't the first time, right, that, that when God is present, there's fire involved. And this is one of the cool things, too, when you think about uh, the Trinity and how we understand three persons to, to God, and like that's confusing and difficult sometimes. But we see that when the Spirit shows up, He is God, and part of the reason we would say that is He's indicating His presence through fire, which is something God had done previously. And so you get these tongues of fire, this understanding of, okay, the Holy Spirit's here, and he shows up. Remember, they were waiting for this to happen. They didn't know what would happen. And so a lot of things kind of start to take place. So let's keep going in the passage. So Acts 2, verses 5 and 6, it says, At that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running, and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. So remember two things, okay? Why are they all in Jerusalem? They're celebrating this holiday, okay? And then it's interesting too. It says, they heard the loud noise and everyone came running. That's interesting to me because that means that it wasn't just like a storm had blown through the city, 
Like, you know how you get, you're outside, you're like, you feel that really strong wind, and like, all of a sudden, you're like, oh, there must be a storm coming, you feel it. No, they like, knew it, it was localized. Like, they could tell it was down the street, it was over here, it wasn't that, so they come running to kind of figure out what's going on. So then verses 7 through 9, it says, they were completely amazed. How can this be? They exclaimed, these people are all from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. Here we are. This is where there's going to be words again, I can't say, right? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, the, uh, the province of Asia. Can't say that one. Can't say that one either. Egypt and the other areas of Libya and Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jew, Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. And we all hear these people speaking our own language about the wonderful things God has done. Remember that sentence. What are they talking about? The wonderful things God has done. Verses 12 and 13. They stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean? And they asked each, they asked each other, but others in the crowd ridiculed them saying, they're just drunk. That's all. <laughs> so these people come running in. They don't, they're not believers. Okay. Just remember that. They're not believers at all. They hear this crazy happening. They run in. They're trying to figure out what's going on and they start hearing these languages. And they know that these people are from Galilee. What does that mean? Well, they mean they know they haven't traveled very far, and Galileans at that point aren't really well known for being very educated. So it's kind of, and it's it's kind of like mean, but it's not. It's just kind of honest. So they they're like, hey, they don't know these languages. How can they know? And you're, you're saying like people have traveled in to celebrate this holiday. They're from all over the place. So how are all of these languages showing up at the same? Time. This is very, very odd. And, and people have questions about this. This is where the question of what is speaking in tongues and how does that work? Again, this is part of it where we don't have time to dig in today. But here's what I want us to know about this instance. The gift of tongues here is a tool of interpretation, not an unknown language. Okay? So people will ask sometimes when they come to our church, like, where do we stand on this, whatever? And like, we have our own personal thoughts. But you won't hear tongues really at, at all in our congregation or things like that. If you want to study more on that, you can go to 1 Corinthians 14. But one of the things that Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 14 is he says, when it's a public speaking of tongues, there should be an interpreter. So there's, there's not just one person involved, there's, there's a couple people involved. And this is kind of what we see here, right? This is them being able to understand a language that they had already established, okay? They, they understood what was going on, and they were having this conversation. Um, Becca and I like to watch the show Friends, and we were watching the show the other day, and there's a character in Friends named Joey. Joey's an actor, if you've never seen it, okay? And so he has, um, on his resume as an actor, he has a lot of things listed at times that he cannot do, okay? So he'll just list things just to get the audition and hope he can make his way through it. Well, one of the things he lists on there one time was that he could speak French. So he says, I got this audition. One of the other friends on the show can speak French. So he goes to her and says, can you teach me to speak French? She goes, sure, I'll help you. So the phrase she uses to help him learn to speak French or just to read the script and be able to say what the script is saying is je m'appelle Claude. Now that's all I know of French, thanks to friends. My wife can speak some French. I've got nothing. But this is what he tells it. So he, she goes, just repeat after me, right? Just say it after me. So she says that, and he just goes, la flip floop. And that's how he answers. And every time she gives him something to say or something to repeat, he just makes something up. It's not actually French. And so that's where I want us to understand, like, it's a silly illustration. 
But that's not what's happening here. There, there isn't a misunderstanding in who's saying what and how it's being said. What's being said is there's somebody that's hearing their own language, but the person who's speaking it doesn't know their language. And so either what's happening is the person who's speaking, one of the apostles maybe or somebody else, is actually speaking and saying words in another language that they don't know, or they're speaking in their language and the Holy Spirit is translating before it gets to the ear of the other person. And so it's just interesting to kind of see this, this is the way that people in this instance are introduced to God, is by running into this place and hearing the language that they know from somebody they don't know. And so they dive in. And so, of course, they want to know more. They want to know what's going on and how this is processing and what's, what's the point. So in verses 14 to 16, it says, Then Peter stepped forward with the eleven other apostles and shouted to the crowd, Listen carefully, all of you, fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem. Make no mistake about this. These people are not drunk, as some of you are assuming. Nine o'clock in the morning is much too early for that. No, what you see is predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. Now, just a quick story. This verse, oh, it's one of the funniest verses in the Bible, isn't it? It's way too early to be drunk, right? There was a time, I've told you this before, I worked at Best Buy for about a year when Becca and I were first married. And I was, I was at the cash registers. I did customer service. I did all of it. And so I was off in there. We opened at 10 o'clock. I was off in there at open, and I would work into the afternoon. And so we'd get people to come through. And I remember this one time. There was this lady who came in maybe 10 minutes after 10. It was, it was early. And right next door was a liquor store. Like literally, it was a strip mall, walk out of our door, turn right, next door, liquor store. So she comes up to me in a thick Russian accent and goes, do you know what time the liquor store opens? And I said, no. And she looks back at me and goes, if you're Russian, you would know. That's how she answers me. And I was like, okay. So I had no idea. But that always makes me think of this verse or that story makes, yeah, either way, both, both, right? Just back and forth. Because I think it's funny. He just says, nope, it's way too early. So he goes on and says, this is what Joel said in verses 17 and 18. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my spirit even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. Verses 19 and 21. And I will cause wonders in the heavens above and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and clouds of smoke. The sun will, con- will become dark and the moon will burn blood red before that great and glorious day of the Lord arrives. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verses 22 and 23. People of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, powerful, yeah, sorry, powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. But God knew what would happen, and his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to the cross and killed him. Now, Peter gives us some insight here. Remember, we're less than two months removed from Jesus being crucified. And he says, you, you people, you knew this. He says, through wonders and miracles and all this stuff, he, God endorsed Jesus. He showed you, because Peter says, you, signs and wonders to him, as you well know. And if you think about this, there were thousands of people that saw Jesus do miracles. Thousands of people, people received a free meal. 
Thousands of people saw others healed of leprosy and being blind and all of a sudden, like all of those things people saw. And yet after Jesus is resurrected, the group shrunk and was only 120 people. There were other people out there who still knew and saw what Jesus did, but hadn't decided to follow him yet. And yet Peter says, you know this, you saw what he did and you saw how he did it. And then he kind of takes a jab at him. This is where Peter kind of has a little bit of a spark tone, right? He goes, with the help of lawless Gentiles, he ropes them in with them and goes, you crucified him. Listen, these people, this is important. These people saw who Jesus was, but refused to believe. They understood that Jesus was different than anybody else. They understood what he could do and how he could do it and what it looked. They understood. They heard the message that Jesus had. But until this point, they had refused to believe what Jesus had to say. And Peter goes on in verses 24 and 25. He says, but God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life. For death could not keep him in its grip. King David said this about him. I see that the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken for he is right beside me. Verses 26 to 28. No wonder my heart is glad and my tongue shouts his praises. My body rests in hope for you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. You have shown me the way of life and you will fill me with the joy of your presence. And so Peter says, Even David talked about who Jesus was and what he was going to do and that God would not leave him in the place of the dead. Now, I think it's important as we think about the ideas of like the miracles that Jesus did. One of the cool things that I think sometimes we look at miracles and we go, oh yeah, Jesus did what wasn't natural. Right, he did things that didn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense if you're blind that Jesus would spit in the dirt, make some mud, put it on your face, and now you're fine. It doesn't make sense that Jesus would just walk up to a grave and say, Lazarus, come out, and he's going to get up and walk out and be fine. It doesn't make sense that he's on a boat and he tells the storm to be calm, and it is, right? It doesn't make any sense. And we look at that, we go, oh, Jesus did things that were out of the ordinary. But here's what I think actually happened, that God endorsed Jesus through miracles. This is what Peter says. And what that means is it's the restoration of what was broken, like Jesus doesn't show up and do things that are out of the ordinary. He puts what's what became the problem and puts it back to the way it was supposed to be. Like people weren't supposed to have leprosy. That's a result of the fall. Like no one was supposed to be sick. No one was supposed to be blind. There weren't supposed to be storms. That's all a result of sin. And so when Jesus shows up into the picture, he puts all of those things back together and says, this is how you know I'm God because I can take what was screwed up because of sin and I can put it back the way it was supposed to be. And so Peter says, you, you all saw this. You saw him be God, be endorsed by God, and you would not listen. So he brings up David and says, maybe you should listen to David. And he goes on in verses 29 to 30. It says, dear brothers, think about this. You can be sure that the patriarch David wasn't referring to himself, for he died and was buried, and his tomb is still here among us. But he was a prophet, and he knew God and promised with an oath that one of David's own descendants would sit on his throne. Verses 31 and 32. David was looking into the future and speaking of the Messiah's resurrection. 
He was saying that God would not leave him among the dead or allow his body to rot in the grave. God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. Verses 33 to 35. Now he is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand. And the Father, as he promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us, just as you see and hear today. For David himself never ascended into heaven, yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. Okay. So he goes to the story of David. He goes, it's not David that was saying this, right? When he says you're holy one, it's not that he was going to keep David from dying. He was, David's clearly dead. We know where the grave is. But he was prophesying through David about Jesus. And this is where, where Peter is presenting to the group that knows who Jesus was, interacted with him, understood what he had to say, but hasn't chosen him. He goes, this is your opportunity to step into this. And, and it's so interesting to me that Peter, and this happens other places, Paul does this, he uses and leverages the voices that these people would understand to lead them to God. And so what they understood, right, if, if we're looking back, at, they're celebrating the holiday, right? They're celebrating the ho- holiday of Shavuot. Servat celebrated the gift of the Torah or the gift of the law, the gift that would say, this is how you are to live separate from everybody else. But Pentecost celebrates the gift of the spirit saying this, this is now what we can receive. Peter leverages it. He realizes the spirit is here. It's moving in the midst of everybody that's, that's here. And I've got to tell them what's going on. I've got to remind them of who Jesus is because they've got to respond to Jesus. And so we've got this holiday where it's like, yeah, you are set apart. Here's the gift, right? The gift is being set apart as God's people. That's, that's the opportunity of when they, would, when they received the law, they got to be set apart as God's people. When we receive the Holy Spirit, we decide to follow Jesus, we are now separated and set apart as God's people. And that's a gift that we get to share and connect with other people. And so Peter says, this is what you need to understand. And so he, he digs in a little bit further and the people start to realize what's going on. Remember, this is again, all being translated in all these different languages in real time. This is so cool. Verses 36 to 37 says this. So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified to be both Lord and Messiah. Peter's words pierced their hearts and they said to him and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Verses 38 to 39, Peter replied, Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you, to your children, and to those far away. Or another way of reading this, anyone who will hear. This is, again, we're included in this. This promise is not just for Jews. It's not just for their descendants. It's not just for It's for anybody. It says, all who have been called by the Lord our God. Now, this brings up another passage, that, or another part of the passage where we could camp and do a whole sermon. But here's what I want us to grab, okay? Baptism is the proclamation that you have been set apart. So one of the things Peter says is, when we recognize this and we've received the Holy Spirit, then we get baptized. Why? Because that's our outer proclamation of being set apart. When 
the Israelites received the law, this was how they showed they were different. They followed the laws. It was how they showed that they were God's people. So now Jesus fulfills the law, right? He comes and does that. And then he says, but I've got this command for you. This is what you're supposed to do in obedience is once you've been set apart, you've received the Holy Spirit. Now you are to be baptized. And that's our proclamation of the difference that Jesus has made in our life. And so in verses 40 to 41, it says this, Then Peter continued preaching for a long time, strongly urging all his listeners, Save yourselves from this crooked generation, those who believe that what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day about 3,000 in all. And the first megachurch happened, right? 3,000 people! Could you imagine, when they woke up that morning, they had no idea the Holy Spirit was going to come that day. There's 120 of them. And by the end of the day, there's 3,000. That's a nightmare logistically, right? How in the world do we know these people? By the way, they all speak different languages. So now you've got to figure that out. I mean, this is where the Holy Spirit shows up, and it's different, and it changes. And all of a sudden, it changes everything. So the question we're left with that we'll try and tackle as we process this on our side is, how do we understand the arrival of the Holy Spirit today? It looks different. Like, I wish, I wish, every time someone received Jesus, there was a little flame that appeared above their head. Wouldn't that be cool? Because then when we, ever, we did like a, an invitation to respond or whatever, you'd be like, you'd all, we'd all look up and there'd be fire above somebody's head. We'd all be like, yeah, right? It'd be like, this is great. Why doesn't it happen? I don't know. I wish it still would. But it doesn't happen in the rest of Scripture either. So when the Holy Spirit shows up this time, it's this crazy wind and there's the flames of fire, there's all this stuff, and it doesn't look the same. And so how do we engage with this, and what does this mean? How do we process as those who have received, if we've received the Holy Spirit, right, we've received it, and, and what do we do with it, and how do we understand what it looks like then to also hand that flame to other people? And, and Jesus actually talked about this. Um, in John chapter 3, we, we're, we all know John chapter 3 because of John 3.16, right? And Jesus, if you, if you don't know the context, if you just know the verse, Jesus is having a conversation with a man named Nicodemus, who's a Pharisee, okay? So he, most of the Pharisees did not like Jesus. They had a problem with him. But Nicodemus is like, there's something different about this guy, right? I got to figure it out. So he comes and starts to have a conversation, and Jesus we're going to pick up the conversation a little bit in John 3, verses 5 to 7. It says, Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say, you must be born again. And then he goes to verse 8 and says, the wind blows wherever it wants. Remember how the Holy Spirit showed up? Wind. So Jesus says, right, just like the wind, so it shows up whenever it wants. Just as you can hear the wind, but can't tell where it comes from or where it is going, so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. And this is what the apostles and the followers of Jesus figured out at Pentecost. You never know when the Holy Spirit shows up, you don't know what's going to happen. It's going to be crazy. The best example of this that we probably have um, oh man, I'm not gonna remember the name of the school. There was a school last year that had, uh, they basically, they called it a revival, but it was a worship service for like a month long, right? What was it? Asbury. Asbury. There you go. For some reason, I could not get that name in my head. By the way, that didn't happen on purpose. They didn't sit down that day and go, revival, here we go. 
That was, they just started to have chapel and it never stopped. This is what happened when the, happens when the Holy Spirit shows up. Things go crazy and you're not really sure what's happening. Now, does the Holy Spirit show up at dining room tables where somebody just prays a prayer with one another? Yup. But does he show up in crazy ways too? Yup. And we go, why? We go, the Spirit does whatever he wants, right? <laughs> he just shows up in different ways and does some crazy stuff sometimes. But it's all to God's glory. And then I want to go to Luke 3, just for a minute. Luke 3, verse 16. This is John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, however you want to say it. And he's, he's getting some questions from his followers, and he responds this way. It says, John answered their questions by saying, I baptize you with water, but someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not even worthy to be his slave and untie the straps of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So guess what? Fire shows up again. So as you... He'll baptize you with the Spirit. You're going to get the Holy Spirit, but then you're going to get, you're also going to get, along with that, fire. That's weird. We don't preach a lot about that one, do we? What does that mean? Dig into this a little bit, okay? So why, why fire? Here's the question, okay? There's a, there's a few reasons, and again, we're going to run through this a little bit quickly, but here's why I think fire is so important. First of all, fire brings light. So remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. When we think of the light of the world, our mind goes to light bulb, right? That's how we understand it. What would their mind have gone to? Fire. Whether it was a candle or whether it was a bonfire or whether it was whatever. If you're giving light to someone back then, it was through fire. So immediately in their brains, if they're the light of the world, they are a fire. Well, then what happens? The Holy Spirit comes and they've all got flames above their head. Well, that makes a lot of sense now for them, doesn't it? Because now I'm the light of the world. Oh, I literally have fire above my head. Now, we don't know when it stopped. Like, we don't know if it was there for 30 seconds. It was there for an hour. We don't know. But they've got this visual now. We've received the Holy Spirit, and now we are the light of the world, and we get to be this light. Here's the other thing, that fire brings warmth. And so in, in 1 John 4, right, this is what it says. God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. We all know this. This isn't like whether you know Jesus or not, you would understand this. When someone loves us, it feels warm. That, that, that's just how it feels. It gives us this feeling of home. It gives us a feeling of security. It gives us a good feeling where we feel like there's a warmth to this that we want. And when it says, and when John says, right, God is love and all who live in love, loving God, like there should be this warmth about the people of God because we have the Holy Spirit, because we've got this fire where people say, I want what you have. There should be a warmth there. That person loves me differently than the other people do. That person cares more about me than some others. And so there's that idea of warmth. And here's the third thing I think that's true, is fire requires action. No matter where you are, if you see fire, you go through a checklist in your brain, don't you? First of all, are the small children away from the fire, right? Is the fire contained to where it's supposed to be? If you're driving down the street and you see a big black cloud of smoke, you'll look over and say, I wonder if there's fire there, right? We have this immediate response and reaction when we see fire to do either something about it or to make sure it's okay. Or even if you're just outside hanging out with people and there's a fire going, where does everybody go? To the fire, right? You just go kind of hang out there because we're drawn to it. And so there's this fire. When, when we introduce fire into a situation, there's a response. It's either good or it's bad or it's to be careful or it's to whatever. And so when 
fire shows up, when the Holy Spirit shows up, there's a light there. We're called to be the light of the world. There's a warmth there, and there should be, and this is where Peter digs in, right? He goes, you're seeing, he says to all these people, you're seeing the reality of God. What are you going to do about it? He says, you know Jesus. You heard from Jesus. You saw what he did. So now, here's what you know. What are you going to do about it? Remember, it said it pierced their hearts. And they said, what do we do? Right? There, there's a response. There's an action. I want to read Luke 3.16 again. Then we're going to go to 17 because I think it's a really interesting dynamic that happens here as John is having this conversation. So just go back to 3.16 for a moment. John answered their questions by saying, I baptize you with water. Someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not even worthy to be a slave and untie the straps in his sandals. Okay? He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and then with fire, and with fire. So then he switches gears in 17 and he says this. He is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. Then he will clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into his barn, but burning the chaff in a never-ending fire. Interesting. Two verses, two different fires. One that's good. One not so good. And this is a very, I mean, it's from Scripture, so it's a very churchy illustration, but he says, you know, like the wheat is what he's gathering tomorrow. What does he mean? If we know Jesus, we're the wheat that's gathered into his barn and are, are with him. If we're the chaff, we're the ones that have denied Jesus, do not follow Jesus, says that chaff will be taken away into a never-ending fire. This is where, and I don't like it, this is where we get the idea of hell, right? There's other places too, but it's not, this is part of that conversation, so John says, this reality is going to happen. There's a really good fire, and there's really bad fire. And we get this. There's really good fires in our home that keep us safe. There's really bad fires in our home that we need to put out immediately. There's a dichotomy here. And the question is, in my mind, as I process this, what are we going to do with the fire we've been given? This is what I think can be very easy for followers of Jesus. I think it's always easier to point out chaff than to gather wheat. Here's what I mean by that. I think it's always easier to look and say someone's wrong, someone's a sinner, someone's bad, than it is to be on the side of let's help gather. Right now I know in this passage, God is doing the gathering. I get that. But Jesus also says the harvest is ripe and ready. So there is a a gathering that happens that we're supposed to help to gather people and help them understand and draw them into the kingdom of God. Or we can sit back and we can say, you're going that way, you're the chaff, you're bad, you're wrong, and that's the fire we point them to rather than the fire we know. Every once in a while, uh, when you're getting ready for a sermon, as, as we do, there's something that happens in culture that really just, as you're processing it, it just kind of pops in and goes, well, this is a good illustration of it. And I think that actually happened um, this week. Some of you may have heard about this, or maybe you saw it. There was an ad campaign that came through uh, with the Super Bowl, called He Gets Us, right? And so the idea, they've done this a couple years in a row. It was an effort by a Christian organization to say, hey, we want to let people know about Jesus, and we're going to do commercials during the Super Bowl to have that conversation. Now, there's all different levels to this conversation, right? Some people are upset because they're like, why'd you spend so much money on a commercial? Okay, whatever, I get that one. But here's what Here's what's happening some of the time. And if you didn't see it, I have a still frame um, from it that Megan could put up for us. Um, It was a bunch of, the first one was a bunch of pictures of people washing each other's feet. 
And, and most of the pictures, it was just picture after picture after picture. Like, I don't know, there was like 15 of them or something. Most of them were key things in culture where there might be difference of opinion or a budding of heads. Okay, so here's what we see in this picture, right? There's a young woman. It's clearly a family planning clinic, so she's maybe choosing what to do with her baby. And there's a woman that's coming along and washing her feet, and there's kind of some protesters over there off to the side. And the, the, this is the way I'm interpreting this, right? Maybe that woman was a part of the protesters, and now she's over washing this person's feet. And one of the things that came up as people were processing this ad, and there's a whole different things, right? All different conversations. But one of the things that some people said were, Jesus would never, ever wash someone's feet who wasn't his follower. And I heard that, and it made me mad. Because if you look back at where Jesus washes the disciples' feet, who's in that room? Judas is in that room. Judas took his newly washed feet to go betray Jesus. So it's not just people that are clearly following Jesus that Jesus washes their feet. Or this isn't even Jesus, right? This is just some woman. There's anybody, person who washes their feet. Here's the other thing I want us to see in Romans 5, 6. What do we do with this verse? When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at the, just the right time and died for us sinners. Here's my question. Which is the greater act of service, washing someone's feet or dying for them? Dying for them. If someone said to you, go wash that person's feet, you'd be like, gross, I don't want to do that, right? That would just be our automatic response. Someone says to you, die for that person, you'd be like, no, right? Why? Because we have to understand that what Jesus does for us is unconditional love. And when we look at pictures like that and say, Jesus would never, I think Jesus hears those things and we look at his life and he goes, you'd be surprised at the things I would do to love people that we would look at that and say, we're not just going to point out the problems. We're going to look at this and say, I'm willing to love somebody in a way that doesn't even make a whole lot of sense, but I want them to know Jesus, and I'm going to step into that space. Not that we would point out the chaff, but that we would help to gather wheat. And I want to go back to, to verses 36 to 37 to help us understand this again, okay? So, and then we'll, I'm, we'll wrap it up in a minute. It says, so let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Peter's words pierced their hearts, and they said to him and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Here's what I think happened in their lives, okay, real quick. The first thing is they saw the truth. What did they see? They saw a God who spoke their language. They walked into that room wondering what was going on, and all of a sudden they heard in their language, Remember what they were talking about? All the amazing things that God had done. So they dig it. They, they see a God that now speaks their language. Somehow, this God that these people worship, that they don't know or they don't worship, is speaking in their language. So they see the truth, that God knows them and loves them. Here's the second thing, that they heard the truth. This is where I don't want to gloss over the fact that Peter clearly says, you killed Jesus, <laughs> Right? He says, you need to repent and turn from your sins. We're not talking about excluding that or not talking about that or not bringing that up. But he says to them, you were responsible for this. By the way, we all sinned and put Jesus on that cross. So we're all in that same boat. So they saw the truth, that there was God who loved them and spoke the language. And then they heard the truth. And then what? They turned their hearts to the truth. They say, what do we do? And Peter says, Repent of your sin, come to know Jesus, and be baptized. 
So they learn. But here's what has to happen in order for this to take place. In order to invite people to Jesus, we need to speak their language. And I've said this to us before. Like, we have to be able to engage with people and say, I want you to know Jesus, and I'm going to meet you in spaces for you to know that. What we would call that sometimes is a third space. What does that mean? It means that we're living this out on a ball field, or we're living this out in the workplace, or we're living this out in the grocery store, or we're living this out at the gym, or we're living all these, uh, these places where we come into contact with people that don't know Jesus, and we engage with them and speak a language that says, I know a God who loves you, and I want you to know that. And it doesn't exclude the fact that we're all sinners, right? That, that's just the reality. Like we have that piece of repenting and turning to Jesus, that all has to happen and be a part of the conversation. But I'm telling you, that conversation doesn't happen before they hear it in their language. And that's what Acts 2 shows us. They have to be able to hear it in their language and understand it before they can understand and just say, well, look at all the bad things and we have to figure this out. And I think sometimes as Christians... We want people to get better from being a sinner before they know Jesus. That's not the way Jesus works. In fact, we read that one verse from Romans, verse 6, but if we went to verse 8, it says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's the reverse, right? We've got to be able to tell them who he is and that he loves them and invite them into that relationship. So here's, here's the question, or here's the idea to wrap us up. Be the fire someone runs to, not the fire they run from. The people ran to, to see what the Holy Spirit was doing that day. They wanted to figure it out. And how did Peter respond? I'm going to tell you about Jesus. You saw these things, you might know these things, but I'm going to tell you about them. I think it's easy for people to be the kind of followers of Jesus, maybe, that people want to run from. Right? They say we're, we're judgmental, we're hypocrites, we're whatever, and, and that's true of everybody, honestly. But that we would be able to be warm, to be light, to share deeply how much God loves someone. And in that relationship then, to invite them to turn from sin, the wrongdoing, whatever, and to learn to follow Jesus is the goal of what we're supposed to do. So we want to be the fire someone runs to. We want to be the first person someone calls and says, I need help, can you help me? You know how to, you, you seem to care more than other people, right? You, you seem to want to invest differently. You seem to have a warmth about you that I don't see in other people. And we can look at them and say, it's because I know Jesus. This is a challenge. I know I went a lot of places today, right? There was a lot there in these passages. But we've got this fire. Holy Spirit, right? John says, with the Spirit and with fire. We've been given this fire. We all know fire can be good, fire can be bad. So how do we use it? If we use it for good, if we invite other people in, they're going to gather, they're going to want to know this Jesus we know. But we can also use it and say, we don't want you or we're too afraid of you or we don't like you, and it keeps them away. So the question is, how, how are we going to use it? The last song that we're going to sing today, the band, uh, you guys can come up, um, is about building the kingdom. And we, we talk about this a lot, right? That we would be part of the process of building God's kingdom. And a part of that is being 
light, being warmth, being God's presence in these places when we have the Holy Spirit and waiting for the Holy Spirit to do something incredible. It's our opportunity then to say that we want the Spirit to move. And I wonder how much we ask that. Like asking the Holy Spirit to do something we don't even understand. To show up and do something that we could never do on our own. Maybe we should ask that more. Maybe we should ask the Holy Spirit to show up in ways that we would never expect to do things that we would never even think would happen. That we could use our fire that he's baptized us with to share with other people who Jesus really is. Would you pray with me? Jesus' story of uh, Pentecost is a crazy one. And I'm sure they felt like that day was just as insane as us sitting here reading it thousands of years later. And Jesus, I ask that this idea of, of the fire you've given us to be the light of the world, to be your love to the people around us, to be your hands and feet to those around us would just be something we're so ready to do. That our presence in these places, when we go there, we connect with people who don't know Jesus, that there would be this warmth and light to us that they don't understand and they are drawn to because they don't get it. And I pray that you'd give us the opportunity to share that with them and, and speak truth into their lives, just like Peter did with these first followers. And Jesus, I pray that we would ask even more so that the Spirit would show up and do things we don't understand, that you would do things in our midst that are just crazy. <laughs> And there's only one way to look at it and just say, that was the Spirit doing something we never could have done on our own. I pray that that would be the reality for us. And I pray that as we go into the world, that people would be drawn to our light and to our warmth because we know you. And that that would cause us to build relationships where we can invite others to follow you as well. In Jesus' name, amen.